0: Hello and welcome to the MGMA Insider Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Today, we're joined by Barb Davis. She's Senior Vice President of Client Success at Cypher Health. Although Barb has enjoyed more than 30 years as a healthcare professional, she's here today to share her experience as a patient. Barb, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Daniel. I am pleased to be here. And uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to Share my stories and my insights.
0: Absolutely. Now, you got on my radar because you wrote a wonderful article that appeared on MGMA.com, and it's titled Anatomy of Errors My Patient Story. Uh, this really does dig into your experience as a patient. Um, for our listeners who might not have had a chance to read that article yet, uh, tell us what happened. What landed you into the healthcare system as a patient?
1: Great question, and I wish I could tell you that it was some exotic ski trip. I live in Colorado, and uh, unfortunately, it wasn't an exotic ski trip to Aspen or Vail. but it was more ordinary than that. I was actually in Grand Lake at a sledding hill. Sounds good, right? So it sounds like a fun day. Unfortunately, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, I was there uh, observing, and all of a sudden two kids in two inner tubes started to come down the hill and I could see that they were coming right at me. So I tried to get out of their way and I got around one of them uh, and I thought I was safe, but then I looked down and I saw that they were tethered together. So when they were tethered together, they caught me and flipped me. And then I landed hard on the snow. Uh, and that's where I think the, the break happened. Uh, so it was kind of a, 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 a bad time. It, for them, they wanted to have fun, but for me, it was that 30 seconds that really did change my life.
0: And what was the break? What, what did you break in, the, in that accident?
1: Uh, so that was my tibial plateau, which before this, I really didn't know much about my tibial plateau, uh, but it is what the kneecap rests on. And so if it is fractured in any way, the knee cap doesn't rest on it solidly. So you're going to be unstable and you can fall more easily and really experience a lot of pain and discomfort.
0: Okay. Now you had the injury. You were at, you were at Grand Lake. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And then so what happened there? Did you go immediately to an emergency room or w- what happened?
1: Well, there is an ER in the town that's uh, kind of down the road, and my sister drove me there. Uh, I had a couple of X-rays, I got the diagnosis, and I was sent on my way with a couple of, uh, you know, with a pair of crutches. But here's the interesting thing about healthcare: it was December 29th, so getting access to care was really challenging. To be honest, uh, I finally did get an appointment with my orthopedic surgeon, who. Uh, said well look you've got two options you can either have surgery and have an internal fixation you know a screw uh, seven screws and a plate to hold that uh, hold that fracture stable and let the bone grow back or you can just leave it but if you just leave it you'll be knock need for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. and I said well, I really don't want to be knock kneed for the rest of my life. <laughs> and so I, I opted for the surgery. Uh, and so that surgery was scheduled about eight days after, this, after my accident.
0: Okay. And then you progressed for a while. And then, according to your article, you then had a replacement surgery. Is that correct? What happened at that point?
1: Well, let me tell you that there's some time in between there that I'd like to share with you too, okay. because I think it, and it actually provides a little bit more context for my observations. So mm-hmm. after after my surgery, uh, I was uh, I was non weight bearing for two months, and that was supposed to give the bone a chance to heal. Uh, and so um, I live alone my house has stairs and so they thought late in the day on i think it was a sunday afternoon i was transferred to a rehab center uh i didn't really think i was ever going to end up in a rehab center so it was an interesting experience for me but when i got there um interestingly enough there was a flu outbreak and so everybody was quarantined to their room So that was kind of one thing that was interesting to me. I thought, well, why did they even allow me to come here? The second thing is, is that I just through the powers of observation, I observed a lot of safety issues um, around, particularly around medication management, but also I got the wrong meal three times. I got the meal for somebody who was in the next room. So um, I did the best I could, and I finally got home after nine days so that was um, that was a great experience to have gotten home and with, when I got home I was with um, I had home physical therapy, and that was great as well mm-hmm. but to be honest after I did all the physical therapy, I did everything right, uh, but six months after the surgery, I was still in really terrible pain. Mm-hmm. Um, And I was also knock-kneed, which was not part of the goal uh, that I had of doing the surgery. So my knock-kneed, it was, you know, if you're knock-kneed, one knee is sort of knocking up against the other. And then my foot was actually kind of not sticking out, but it was definitely not at a, you know, at a straight angle. So the biggest issue was really the fact that I was in so much pain. And when I finally got in to see my doctor, Uh, He told me, well, my IT band was just rubbing over those screws and the plate, and that was really the motivation for me to get that removed because of the pain that I was in. Right. It was with every step I took, so it was really something that I couldn't ignore and couldn't avoid.
0: Okay. Now, I want to refer to your article now because I love this line that you have in there. You write... The plan, was this, uh, the plan was the surgeon would use the original incision to remove the plate and screws. That part went well. All the preoperative and intraoperative processes were flawless as far as I could tell. But uh, I'm guessing everything wasn't flawless. Uh, when you had this procedure, wh- what happened with you at this point? Walk us through this.
1: Well, there's so much that happened after that procedure, and uh, uh, you know, I, I I did remember as as I was sort of in thinking about this that the anesthesiologist had changed my uh, the anesthesia right at the last moment, and it was a good decision. Uh, she said, "Well, rather than having a spinal anesthesia, you can I'll give you propofol, which means what you can do is then is you'll be able to get up and." And uh, get out of here sooner. And I said, "Oh, that sounds great." Well, what I didn't know is is that I was going to have that a little bit of a reaction, and uh, where I had really a low heart rate in the in the PACU in the post anesthesia care unit. So when that happened, I did have to stay a little bit longer in the PACU. But finally, I got to the um, to the area where you know they kind of do the post-operative teaching and make sure you're okay to leave and they do a clinical assessment before you leave. I was ready to leave, but I couldn't find my clothes. Somehow my clothes had not made it with me. Uh, And so that um, kind of then was a uh, chain reaction where Mm -hmm. the nurses who should have been taking care of me and others, by the way, in the, in the, uh, in the area for re- ready to go home, um, they instead, three of them went upstairs and went kind of a room to room search to find my uh, clothing. Mm-hmm. It took about an hour. So uh, it really took a long time for them to come back. And finally, they were found in, a, um, in another patient's room. And the husband said, oh, I wondered whose clothes those were. Uh, and then I wondered at the time when they came back, I thought, well, did he also wonder if they can't take care of clothing and personal belongings, can they, how much, how well are they going to be able to take care of my wife? So it kind of was one of those things where if they can't do something as simple as patient belongings, it, it raises a question in a patient's mind about mm-hmm. the clinical care.
0: So they lost your clothes. Uh, have you done any either, uh, Scientific research or anecdotal research to know if this is a, a common situation do, do they often misplace people's clothing?
1: Well, you know I worked in the hosp- in various hospitals for well over thirty years, and I would say that it is pretty um, pretty common, but I would also say that people have put things in place to make sure that people's clothing are retrieved. I know at some of the hospitals that I worked in, this was a while ago, there would be a whole room of patients' belongings. And then, you know, maybe after the patient goes home, like from the ER or something like that, they would call and then security officer would go down and rummage through people's clothing. Uh, and after a certain amount of time, well, it was donated. So it does happen. but. With the advent of the computer and with bar scanning and that sort of thing, it's really helped uh, control patient belongings. But this is definitely something that people need to know about before they go in uh, to, uh, for healthcare procedures. Is that you know they always say, don't wear your watches, don't wear anything that's of value. And it's because it's not a you know, fail-safe kind of a, a program with keeping people's belongings secure.
0: Right. And it speaks to what you were saying earlier that, okay, if they're misplacing my clothes, then what about the actual care? What's, (laughs) what is taking place? What is getting uh, mishandled in that regard as well? Is that kind of where your mind was going at this point?
1: Uh, The the thing that was kind of that chain reaction is because the, the nurses were so consumed with my, finding my clothes, which, definitely the right thing to do they I think that they were distracted enough where the patient teaching wasn't done and so when I left the hospital I didn't have any kind of wound care instructions and so I was really at a loss about what to do and so in fact it did have an implication it did have a spillover effect on my clinical care
0: Now I wanna back up for a moment because you have mentioned it and I mentioned it that you have 30 years of healthcare experience, but I think it's really important that we talk about where your focus has been. Um, In researching our conversation, I went out to your LinkedIn page as people do these days and in your first sentence, in your very first sentence, it says, your work focuses on developing solutions for current and emerging healthcare needs including the patient experience in reducing readmissions. And I saw that and I went, oh my God, this is, <laughs> there's some irony taking place here. What, <laughs> you, this is your, your area and, and th- now it's happening to you. So talk about that, what's going through your mind, not only as it happened, but also probably even more so when you're kind of not in so much pain anymore and you've had time to really reassess what in the heck is going on here with your patient care and your patient experience?
1: Well, um, that is such an interesting question. Uh, I, have to, I have to be honest with you, uh, because there were times that I was both a participant in my care and an observer in my care. Uh, here's an example. So when I was at the rehab center that I talked about, I, I actually had so many observations I wanted to share with the uh, CNO. Well, it was an acting CNO. Uh, and But I found that she wasn't so interested in hearing what I had to say. In fact, uh, she was interrupted during our little session together, and she said she'd come back, and then she never did. So that's just one example. And, and later on, after the I left the hospital. I think I was on post-op day 16. I called the hospital to say, "Hey, look, I had this issue with my wound care instructions," and I talked with the OR manager, and uh, he told me that that, in his view, the surgical assistant had done everything right when wrapping my wound, and then he threw my physician under the bus about the discharge instructions. It might have been true. All of that might have been true, but he he really was very defensive. I I found him to be very defensive about the care. And then when I talked to the perioperative nurse about manager about my lack of discharge instructions, she sort of made me feel like I was the person in the wrong. Mm -hmm. So what I found in these three examples, as I was participating in the care and trying to do something about it and really uh, look out for the next person, it was, uh, I found that People were pretty consistent in their response to me. It was like, uh, you're wrong and, and we're right. So I was very disappointed in that response, to be honest.
0: Right. And you've got a line in the article that I, I really love this one. It's the burden of communication should not lie with the patient. What do you mean by that? I mean, I know it's pretty obvious, but walk us through that. What, what do you actually mean by that?
1: Well, I think as a patient, um, you're really in a different state of mind. Um, uh, You probably are a little uh, distracted by all of the things that are going on. Um, Your family may be concerned about you. You've got to deal with that. Uh, You don't know what's going to happen once you have that uh, procedure. And so your mind is just kind of mixed up and then there might be pain on top of that or there might be you know pen pain medications and so there's a lot going on with that patient and so this whole concept about advocacy which I am a total believer in is really hard uh, to manifest when you're in that kind of weakened condition and so while I and I have thought about it myself why didn't I call earlier, I waited seven days after my surgery before I contacted the the, uh, doctor about my wound care instructions. And I'd done some other things. I'd gathered information. Uh, I looked through my chart a million times, but I couldn't find anything. And so why did I wait uh, for seven days? And so I feel like I'm a pretty active patient. I'm very involved in my own care. And it's actually even, it was after the surg- surgery itself. So I don't know, I, I cannot find what in my own um, being, my own self, why I wasn't able to take that next step and um, communicate with the providers during the time that I really felt like I needed some help. Uh, so I don't know what to tell you about that. That is. The burden of communication should not rest with the patient because of all the things that I said. And there is this, in healthcare, uh, people in healthcare know this, uh, but there's sort of a hierarchy. uh, And there's also a knowledge difference between what the providers know and what the patients know. And so there's a pretty big gap there. And uh, at this point, Providers have used all kinds of other techniques like there's the teach back technique and there are all kinds of other things uh, Pictures that that people have used to try to effectively communicate with patients, but there's just a gap Uh, And during and it's really that gap that needs to be filled uh, during the care uh, before the care during the care and after the care is provided
0: Well, it does seem like there was a I know there was some chaos going on, but it seems like there was a real lack of communication through your experience. Is there generally a certain protocol that would have been followed that someone would have, I don't know, post-op sat down with you, gone over a few things just to let you know here you're going to do this, this and this. Is that what you were expecting and what you would expect post-op?
1: Uh, yes, uh, you know this. Uh, the hospital that I went to has uh, has done a lot of things right, uh, and it's a really uh, uh, has a very good reputation. It has uh, great surgeons. It's got a great OR staff. I mean, there are so many things that it's done right. One of the things that it did right was uh, that they actually contract with the company that I'm currently working for, Cipher Health, to do post-op and post-hospitalization discharge follow-up calls. So so if somebody has a procedure like I had, it really is the best care possible to do some sort of follow-up um, call to make sure that the patient is recovered, that they understand their discharge instructions, that they've got access to their medications, that they've you know, got the follow-up, appointment with their uh, surgeon or with their uh, PCP. So all of those pieces of the puzzle need to be put in place to prevent readmissions and also to make sure that the patient is safe at home. So that is one of the strategies that's in place for a lot of organizations to do if they don't have an automated call like Cipher Health provides, then they have nurses on the phone who are making the calls. But sometimes that can be a little hit or miss just because of the workload and the requirements associated with it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I've I've referenced your article a few times. That's the source material where I first learned of your story. And you could have suffered in silence, but as a healthcare executive, you have a you have a platform, you have a voice that can really carry some weight. And I wanna be clear, I never, in reading your article, I never got the uh, impression that you were bashing healthcare, that you were bashing even this particular hospital. To me, it seems like the roles were reversed as a healthcare person for all these years. Now you were on the other side of it as a patient. You see it, if I'm reading this correctly, as a true teaching moment, a a moment for you to have, a voice to to speak out for not only you as a patient, but to educate and give some instruction to healthcare professionals so they can learn from this and go, wait a minute, you know, people do get lost in the system or lost in some of the chaos, is that correct? And um, what do you wanna say about that?
1: Well, it's a, a really interesting observation and I appreciate your insights into that. So when I first, Entered healthcare, uh, and and uh, it was healthcare quality was all about just being accredited essentially, and if you were, you know, accredited by one of the accrediting agencies, that was good enough. Uh, but really, healthcare quality has changed over the years, and my understanding of it ha- has changed a great deal. Um, I will say just on reflection about writing the article is is that it was a little tough I have to be honest to to relive my experience but at the same time uh, it was enlightening because I got to see it as opposed to uh, kind of oh that happened to me or this happened to me I really got to see it through the safety lens and I talk a little bit about that in the article and uh, I, I felt like I wanted to write that article in order to share uh, my perspective. I feel like I have a unique perspective having been in healthcare for such a long time, and then also experiencing this and being able to use that safety lens to look at it um, uh, differently than maybe somebody else would.
0: Mm -hmm. I I wanna ask you this then, Was was it an easy decision or how difficult a decision was it to decide to write the article?
1: It was tough, I'll be honest, it was really tough because um, I had to relive all of these moments and there were times that I was angry, there were times that I was disappointed in myself, there were times that I was disappointed in the healthcare system. Um, I relived that, the pain and agony of not being able to walk very well and the fear that I had about it compromising you know the rest of my life Mm -hmm. so all of those things came up as i was writing the article uh and uh, uh, but then i tried to turn it around i said okay how can i make you know this some something very positive out of this experience and that was really where i felt like okay let me look at this through a different set of you know colored glasses so to speak um and uh i i really did that by by kind of going back to some of the work that I've done in patient safety. And uh, there was a gentleman who's done a tremendous amount of work, not in healthcare safety per se, but really in nuclear and um, uh, some of the other, um, like aircraft maintenance and that sort of a thing. His name is James Reason, he's British. And he's just has done a fabulous job of, of really helping us in healthcare. Look at the issue of errors differently. And he talks about them in the context of a person error and a system error. So, when I started to look at what happened to me in that context, it really gave me much, um, a much more sort of satisfying way to um, assess my experiences using that framework
0: hmm You have a line in here, and I want you to help e- explain this to us. It says, effective error management is aiming for continuous reform, not local fixes. W- what do you mean by that? What is What is continuous reform?
1: Well, so my experience in healthcare has all been about quality improvement. And the idea behind that is continual improvement. And so you might fix a problem once and and what james reason really talks about is this continual reform so you don't just look at what happened where it happened you say okay could this happen other places so if we take the example of my uh the lost belongings and you know when you're in surgery you you know you're in someone else's hands Uh, you don't have because of the anesthesia you can't you know, breathe necessarily. You can't talk. You can't represent yourself, and so you need a lot of help during that surgery time. And so you trust your life uh, to these people. So, kind of the last thing on your mind is your own personal belongings. Um, but for in in healthcare, what James Reason is suggesting with his framework is to say, all right. That's not unique to the OR. Let's take other places in the hospital where people are vulnerable and that they've come in dressed and they have to go through a medical procedure and they might have to leave their personal belongings in a place and make sure that whatever that personal belonging, whatever that process is, is fail safe and and foolproof. And so that's what he's talking about. The local fixes, I can fix it once and it's fixed for that one person, or maybe for that one process, but let's take a look at how can that. Are there other locations? Are there other conditions within the organization where that same fact, where those same factors are um, are available, and the risks, the risk of losing your personal belongings, are the same in those settings as they are in the OR. Does that make sense?
0: It does, and it it reminds me there's a sort of a inspirational quote or uh, philosophy about good writing, and it says you you want to achieve the universal in the particular, and so I believe that's what you're doing here you're yeah, you're talking about Barb's broken leg and the how she went through the system and and dealt with that, but you're expanding it to. But this could happen in any healthcare setting, no matter what the illness or the situation might be. Is that correct? You're looking for the, yeah, you're using it through the lens of your own experience, but you're talking about it on a more a broader scale as well.
1: Exactly. And so uh, James Reason has sort of the, that three part strategy to air management. And one of them is to th- reduce the risks. Well, you can do that through. You know, a risk assessment. Uh, where are the potential risks, and and then figuring out, well, the, identifying those countermeasures uh, to uh, reduce the risks and and to uh, really really mitigate those. Then the second one that we were just talking about is what I would look at is is containment. So. It's like, okay, it happened once in one location, let's look at the other locations where this same issue could uh, happen. And so you really kind of take that one and generalize it to the other locations. And then the third aspect to that is the management for effectiveness. And that's where I think the continual improvement is really um, is really something that is part philosophy and part practice because the, continual, the the management for effectiveness, it's, it's possible that you resolve something, and then over time, whatever that situation is, erodes. I mean, whatever the solution was, erodes. And then you need to go back and revisit it and make sure that it's uh, solved for good. But he has also... Um, as part of this he's developed this swiss cheese model and i reference that in my um in my writing for the mgma and it's a very interesting concept uh that he developed you know if you think about swiss cheese you think about okay there's a hole and then there's more cheese well what he says is that this is in a system approach to healthcare. these are ever evolving and sometimes the holes are all lined up and so then an error can occur when there aren't those preventive kind of practices in place to make sure that the error doesn't happen. And so he says that it's very dynamic uh, within this Swiss cheese model and that we always have to be able to adjust and readjust uh, to make sure that we've got all of the, the, the prevention in place to make sure that the errors don't go through those, the Swiss cheese holes. Mm -hmm. so that's part of his management for effectiveness also
0: right you have uh you talk about your analysis of the situation as you're kind of reflecting on it now what are some of those last pieces that you'd like to share with the audience that could perhaps help them in their own care with uh, patients that they come in contact with
1: well um one of the things that i think that uh, James Reason helps us understand more effectively us in healthcare. care uh, is the concept of latent conditions that and promote errors or that allow errors to happen and uh, and these are the things that are those practices that are where things are just waiting to happen and if I think about it in healthcare, I mean everybody knows what those are if you were to ask well you know what? What keeps you up at night? What? Excuse me. What do you fear? that's going to happen that could, uh, you know, be problematic for patients. And so it's it's really looking deeply at those latent conditions that um, help that ha- you know that make uh, these errors happen. The example that I would say uh, was the situation with losing my clothes. Losing my personal belongings. That was an issue that resulted from the latent conditions of the way that they organized the personal belongings, the way that they, you know, alphabetized them. I don't know how it happened, but somehow those, my personal belongings, ended up on another uh, patient's, uh, in another patient's room. The other kind of error that uh, James Reason talks about is he calls it a slip. And what is interesting about a slip uh, is, is that this this happens when uh, there is just this lapse in concentration. It's almost like we're on autopilot. And so uh, I would say that during the time that they were um, doing The the nurses were so focused on finding my clothes that they sort of forgot about uh, the important part of my discharge, which was my discharge instructions and my wound care. And the other aspect that is so true in healthcare, which is the slips can occur when um, we're tired, when we're emotionally distressed, or we're just plain old stressed out. And those are conditions that are just rampant in almost every aspect of healthcare delivery at this point. And so we really have to have ways of preventing those slips.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it, it's clear in talking to you that this has really affected your, well, I'd say it's magnified your ability to empathize with patients, to be able to see uh, see things through their eyes because you experienced it yourself and I'm curious, so what has that done for you as a healthcare executive? What, someone who focuses on performance improvement, on best patient experience, has have you rolled up your sleeves and come up with new strategies, new ideas uh, as a healthcare exec? Uh,
1: again, a great question, Daniel, thank you. And, and um, I've done enough work in change management to know that I have to change myself first, and so I wanted to speak personally about my own uh, transformation. And so, um, you know, having been working and and working to improve healthcare for the last thirty years, um, I my transformation by experiencing this was really an understanding of just the the shortfalls of our current healthcare system and the fact that most people don't know how to navigate them so it was sort of those two-part a two-part transformation and realization for me I have always been passionate about improving things and um, you know just ask my family it's uh, it, it was like every time i got a certification in lean or in quality management my i just became more and more attuned to the opportunities associated with driving more value for the customer or reducing errors or really doing it right the first time yeah. so it those th- that also was an important like I am completely 100% committed to the continual uh, improvement in healthcare. And also, as part of that, is that there's this kind of duality of the imperative for patients and family members to be really um, uh, advocating for themselves in this environment where they kind of turn over their um, own abilities to a team of people. And so, It's important that we make sure that the patients and the family members can speak up for themselves. And then I have one more sort of comment to that that I think is my own self-realization, which is that as a healthcare executive, uh, we need to focus on what's important to patients. and then taking it down one more level it's like what's important to me as a patient i'm an individual i really have got my own needs and the best way to do that is to ask patients what it is that's important to them so that's a big transformation and i'll just want to share a story because one of the other things that i do at cypher health is work with clients who are using our digital rounding tool. So it's an iPad, uh, we program in a script, and then the nursing leaders can go and ask patients questions. And typically the questions have been, are the nurses doing their job? And because of my experiences now, I would like to turn that around so that uh, we're really focusing on what's important to the patient. Uh, And there's a quote kind of uh, in healthcare that's, you know, Healthcare providers typically ask the question, "What's the matter with you?" And we really need to turn that around to say, to ask, "What matters to you?" But it's a little bit of a shift in the language that's so important, but it represents a really big shift in the perspective that healthcare providers have.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful insight. Um... Barb, thanks so much for sharing this incredible story with our listeners.
1: Well, thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate it. And I sincerely hope that uh, my story can help clinicians and other healthcare professionals see, think, and plan uh, their work environments and they can really use that safety lens too. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Well, thanks again to Barb Davis for joining our podcast today. And if you'd like to share a story with us please send us an email to podcast at mgma.com. Thanks again for being an MGMA Insider. I'm Daniel Williams.